Welcome to He Said, She Said Razor Branding Podcast with Michael Russo and Jackie Russo. To learn more about how to improve your brand, visit brandrusso.com. Welcome to He Said, She Said Razor Branding Podcast with Michael and Jackie Russo. Michael, today's guest, Shahar Maroney, which I had to make sure clearly how to pronounce it three times because I did not want to screw it up, is a font of information. I don't know if it's his time agency side or the work he does teaching, but I just dig everything about him. The way he approaches B2B marketing, the way he thinks about brand architecture, the way he talks about research, I'm here for all of it. It was like looking in a mirror. It was like talking to myself. You we, wish. We... <laughs> you wish you were this cool. You wish you had that many interesting ads on the wall behind you. I, know. I mean, you wish. I know, I know, but he he is like living the life though. I mean, I would, I mean, he's running an ad department at a cool university, and he's got an agency on the side. I mean, he, you know, it, it's very cool. He was very cool to talk to. We we definitely aligned on a lot of the same principles and philosophies, which is always nice to hear. Yes. No, Christina has once again hit it out of the park and brought us a guest that's better than ourselves, and I love it. I don't know if you, I don't know if you should say that better than oh. ourselves. As good as We're, ourselves. Yes. Okay. Maybe. But yeah, I mean, fresh new perspective for ourselves. Yes. Okay. Look, at the end of the day, people are listening to us. They're listening to the guests. They don't want to hear an echo chamber of us. They want to hear new thoughts. And I think that we've had so many great guests doing that. I am comfortable in my place in the world to say that these guests sometimes are better than us at stuff. They're not better at everything. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay to like others. It's all right. I don't you like the direction do. of this conversation. Maybe we should do, do this whole thing over. Just start over. Oh, no, it's here now. What and ladies and gentlemen, Shahar Maroney. Shahar, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So we were talking a little bit right before we started, and I'm just going to dig right into your early days. Uh, because you have worked for a with a husband-wife duo before, Tell us about the nightmare that that felt like. <laughs> Just kidding. That's not <laughs> I what you say it's said. A nightmare in case they're listening. No, it was you know <laughs> like any first job. It had pros and cons, um, but it was a smaller uh, Chicago agency, about 25, 30 people, and a husband wife team ran it. I think it worked because they met because they were both professionals first and then met through that industry, mm-hmm. um, but definitely had the more business side and the more creative side. I think we each learned as employees kind of like when to go to mom or when to go for to dad, depending <laughs> on what you want and, and how to pull their buttons. It took only months before we kind of figured yeah, that out. Mom, mom and dad are fighting. Mom and dad are fighting. Yeah. Everybody just shut your doors and keep your head down. And yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Um, yeah. And as Michael mentioned it to you, you know, I feel like in years like one through 15, that was that was definitely a challenge here. Um, but we kind of finally maybe grew up, found a better rhythm of working together, stopped being a stress with kids at home. You know, as they've left and gone to college, I think it's gotten a little easier. So I think the crew we have now would would say, like, what are you talking about? There's a tone every once in a while. And it's usually Michael's fault. Uh, but now I think that, you know, everybody's kind of grown up a little bit. But that has to have been challenging as an employee working in that environment. What were your takeaways in terms of how to better navigate that kind of structure? Yeah. Um, well, you know what? Honestly, it didn't come up that often because um, fortunately, everybody was pretty professional. So, um, you know, a lot of it had to do with the the disciplines and backgrounds. If I was um, more involved and I was all over the place, by the way, coming out of college, I was sort of a jack of all trades, find, trying to find my place. 
that's where a smaller agency was fantastic for me because they tried me some in strategy, some in creative, some in account, that sort of a thing. So usually it was like, you know, if I was in a biz dev kind of a project or mindset, I was going, um, you know, with one person. And if I was in a copywriter mindset, getting my work reviewed, um, I went to a different person for a different reason. But there were times that, you know, if you want a tiebreaker, you kind of feel the room a little bit and say like, you know what, I think this works better with her or I think he does better with this in the morning. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, so as you got to do that work, was that a heavy B2B shop or did your B2B experience come later? Yeah, it already at that point, um, I think that was about half B2B and uh, my in my career only went even more B2B after that. I really loved B2B. I didn't know going into it that I would, you know, um, entering my background was in advertising. And, uh, you know, you think about ads that, you know, brands that, you know, in your day to day. And when you start out, you want to create work that your friends are going to see, right? You know, I want to make that Super Bowl ad or that clever thing that got last. And so when you're working on a clients that are in industries you never heard of or who get, who advertise through channels that you would never normally see, um, you know, niche industries and things like that. At first, it's like, oh, that's not what I expected. Then I learned that, you know, the fun and excitement and challenge of working on brands had very little to do with the specific subject matter or industry they're in. And so much more the people, the the client in terms of the human being sitting on the other side of the table who, if they trust you, give you a really long leash and give you a lot of room to explore and maybe are willing to take some challenges or some um rise up to the challenge in ways that sometimes a larger consumer brand doesn't feel as comfortable and wants to play it more safe. So um, early on, and then one of the great things was, at least when I got started about 20 years ago or so, um, B2B was not quite as sophisticated as it is now in terms of marketing and communications. Um, their brands were you know, still very much like, we just want to deliver features and benefits. That's all our audience cares about. Don't give me any of that touchy-feely stuff. Only later on, you know, they're realizing, hey, they're still human beings making these decisions. And our customers, even if they're a B2B audience for us, they're still consumers in their daily life. And we still have to make that emotional appeal to them. So really understanding how you use these principles of brands and advertising that apply to everything and seeing how that works for B2B. I really love that aspect of it. Absolutely. And, and we've tried to really kind of, uh, we've kind of pivoted into that space over the past 10, 15 years. And we realized that it was really a strong suit of us. Our clients kept coming in and we kept realizing, looking around and saying, you know, we're actually pretty good at this and maybe we should kind of tilt towards it, you know, and lean into it and um, bring in that, that B2C sensibility into that B2B world, you know, and try to really make it more conversational and tell those stories. And that seems to be popular and talking about, but there is still a lot of resistance to uh, a lot of pushback. People may want to believe in it, but then it comes to toe in the line. They're like, oh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe that's too, too funny, too, needs to be more serious. Needs to, we need to really stick to our, and I'm like, come on, trust it, trust it, keep going, keep going, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. There's certain things that do apply more to maybe B2C than B2B in some cases, like tone of voice, for example, sometimes you do get more serious. Um, more commonly, I find it's around things like um, length and complexity. Um, I will stand by the idea that B2B or B2C, you've got to keep it simple. Um, you've got to lead with one key message. I tell people as a message, uh, someone who does messaging, you can tell your audience everything, but not all at the same time. You've got to pick one thing to lead with. And that doesn't matter if you've got some massive complex business um, or if you're selling gum you still start with one thing that is so hard we just got i just got done with a project with that and we did a boilerplate um for them and we just did a whole messaging campaign and this really tight little message at the end of a, a press release real basic right and by the time we were done going back and forth it was a novel it was like i mean <laughs> they, they were throwing every i'm like guys this is not what this is supposed to be and we're still kind of back and forth a little bit but um 
there's a time where you have to kind of surrender a little bit, but we're, we're going to fight the fight, you know, because it's just, you know, yeah, you're right. You have to kind of get it down to the least common denominator. You know, people aren't going to process it otherwise. Absolutely. Hey, Jackie, I'm, I'm looking at um at his uh, LinkedIn page right now, and he has a mutual friend of yours, Who's Michael that? Glass. Oh. Yes. Oh, Michael Gass. I love Michael Gass. Yeah, fueling new business. He does a bunch of work with agencies. Have you ever attended one of his conferences or anything? I haven't. I've been following okay. him for years on LinkedIn, but never actually, I don't think, talked to him outside of, you know, those quick messages that are on there. Right. Oh, my gosh. He's the best. So I met Michael. I was He just started his Fueling New Business podcast, which if you're in the agency space, it is a must read, which obviously you do, but I'm saying that to the listeners. And so I started following him back in the mid aughts and round about maybe 2008, he reached out to me because he was assembling a group of like-minded agencies in Birmingham to all get together and kind of talk about this new thing, social media. <laughs> it just makes me laugh now even thinking about it. And so I think eight of us maybe showed up I was the youngest by at least a decade and a half. And um, so I just sat at the knees of the wise ones and listened and learned. And it was probably like going to band camp. You know, I, I got to move up from fourth chair all the way to first chair throughout the weekend is what it felt like and learn so much. And then he put on a really big conference in Nashville a few years ago and was kind enough to invite me to speak uh, at that. And it was awesome. So huge resource. I love him. Yeah, he's great. Also, I've always appreciated he's had like an, a cartoon or illustration of his face for years on LinkedIn. I have a background as a cartoonist, so I always appreciated his uh, style that he had and that he stuck with it as part of his brand. Well, I had noted your work as a cartoonist, and I was going to get to that. Um, <laughs> and I know that our listeners can't see, but are some of those drawings behind you some of your work? Uh, not at the moment, I don't think. I'm in my okay. office on campus right now. I also, um, besides owning a co-owning an agency, I also um, I teach full time at the University of Illinois. These are just a smattering of ads that I like um, from all over, from magazines, from whatever. Um, it just serves as my uh, backdrop in my office. I feel like when students come in for office hours, it's like my home court advantage. They get kind of yeah. like overwhelmed. But I also use it to kind of reference things like, oh, this is the difference between design and art direction. Or here's what I mean when I say hierarchy of messaging, you know, right. mostly, though, it's just backdrop. Well, on, on a side note, I'm so impressed with that. And um, I I come from the university that I studied with had a guy named Dutch Kepler who ran it at the time. And he was one of those like infamous uh, ad guys. And he taught basically an advertising design program where you learned how to be an art director and learn how to write a little bit and learn how to concept and things like that. But you would start with like 20 kids and graduate five or six. You know, it was just a grueling program. But he produced most of the art directors in the, in the Gulf South for a long time and agency owners and things like that. And I definitely wear it as a badge of honor that I survived it, you know, and um, but it seems like nowadays things have changed a little bit. But I think it's so important to have professionals in the education space um, and, it, you know, to have somebody that you're you must produce great students because, you know, you have to kind of know what's going on, have your pulse on the industry to be able to talk about it in a way that's that's real. And so when they get out, I can tell when I interview people when they come in, if where they come from, you know, I'm like, OK, I can tell by their book. I can tell by how they talk. And if it's student work or not, and what they don't know as students, I'm like, look, you've already pigeonholed yourself. I'm, I am now, you're now in a certain grade. You're like, okay, entry level, very green. I have to train you. I have to kind of do everything from the beginning versus I've been taught a certain way and I can grasp onto these concepts real quickly, you know, and understand not just how to design, but how to work with copy and how to manage those things together. And 
especially down in our area where you're kind of a hybrid, you do a little bit of everything. So it's good to have all those skills. So anyway, um, I think that, that's just awesome to hear. I'm, I'm Like I said, I'm sure you have a great program working there. Yeah, thank you. That's actually, I think, why I was brought in. You know, um, I've been here almost 10 years now, and I had no teaching experience before I started. It was entirely my industry experience, and they were like, we, we want to make sure our students get um, educated by um, academic professionals as well as industry professionals so they can see what it's really like. We're in an industry that changes all the time. You know, we're not like chemistry, for example, that most of what you learn is fairly timeless to an extent. Um, but as a result, I've actually often run my classes sort of like you described, boot camp style, maybe not as harsh in some cases, but I taught the capstone for years and it was entirely designed to simulate a real agency experience, even assigned them to real nonprofits to work with and all that kind of stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, if y'all want to do an agency tour and there's some budget to travel all the way to Louisiana, we're happy to host. Let us know. Right on. <laughs> I think they'd love that. Um, so, Shahar, one of the things that kind of jumped out at me with your B2B experience is, and we're back to LinkedIn again, but how vocal you are about the different aspects of LinkedIn. And you posted something a while back that got my attention regarding brand architecture. Can you talk a little bit to how you approach that in the B2B space and how you think it maybe differs in the B2C world? Yeah, for sure. So brand architecture is one of those. Um, I like to wonk out about this kind of stuff and, and get behind the scenes. You know, regular people don't throw around words like that always. Um, but brand architecture is one of those things that like you don't always know it until something's wrong and then it's a real problem. It's almost like the plumbing um, and electrical work of, of the house of brands that you've got. Um, I, we work with a lot of clients that have been part of like mergers and acquisitions. And by the time we come to work with them, it's like our business has morphed over time, but our brand hasn't quite caught up. And along the way, you know, it's caused some issues. Our product portfolio is kind of like our naming structures all over the place. Um, we don't know whether to promote the company or the product at this point. We don't know even if like what logo to slap onto this particular one. Um, also internal cultural issues. You know, we have these people that came from this acquisition and they've sort of retained their own uh, internal culture and they feel sort of like an us versus them. Sometimes a little bit of that is healthy, but honestly, it becomes a mess and it becomes a bigger problem the longer you go. Um, so a lot of times we're brought in um, to do rebranding. Um, other times if it's a, it's a new brand, um, but typically it's a rebranding. And the idea with something like brand architecture is understanding that relationship between the various um, company and product brands. Um, and sometimes companies have a framework like a more master brand approach where they want that overall company brand to shine through and be the main thing that people see and associate with them. Other times they have individual products that are more like a hero brand themselves. They're like the company's kind of behind the scenes. We really want these products which have their own brand equity um, to rise forward. Uh, and then sometimes they have sort of a hybrid solution. Sometimes they need help sort of morphing from one model to the other. So you know, worked with so many of them over the years. Um, there's some great stories, but as you guys know, not always ones we can share because that's like real behind the scenes stuff that sometimes companies don't even want to admit that they brought in an outsider to help them with these things. But there's no shame in it. You know, there's no shame in having a bit of a mess that came from organic growth over time. And now you've got some cleanup to do. You do it so you can be more efficient and more scalable. Um, sometimes that comes with just helping our clients who might be, say, like the chief marketing officer or brand officer at their company and help them sell it through the organization and just be like, you know, here's the financial benefits of cleaning up or the financial costs of having an issue. Uh, and then, you know, maybe here's some of the uh, possibilities that come with it, the ability to go into new markets, um, have maybe better sales materials or just make sales and marketing materials more efficiently. Do you think that at times people get that mixed up too? Because I, I think there's been situations where 
the word rebranding can really scare people off because it's such a big endeavor and the, oh my god the cost and the, and the, the pain of it all but sometimes a closer look at the architecture is what you need. And that's not necessarily a full rebranding. It's just a reorganization sometimes and, and a descriptor change and a naming, you know, rights and where you're putting things in the right places can really make a big difference. Absolutely. That word rebrand, man, we started this year with a real focus on rebranding. We had done a few of them recently. I mean, we've done so many of them in our careers, me and my partner, uh, but we uh, we we saw a real focus on this area. A lot of people were very interested in it in 2023, only to learn that the word rebrand itself is such a loaded word, even amongst ourselves. At one point, there was myself and two of my strategist colleagues talking about what is a rebrand? What constitutes a rebrand? And we had three completely different definitions of it. Um, and we realized, oh, maybe this is the conversation to have, which is what is changing and how much is a bigger, more interesting conversation than does this count as a rebrand or not? Because for some people, any little change that is more substantial than just like an aesthetic small thing uh, would be considered a rebrand. Others say, no, 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 you can make evolution and progress and changes over time. It only counts as a rebrand if you if you pass X threshold, right? We have a new name, we have a new logo. Um, our positioning, say, has changed enough. Then there's aspects of um, what's changing um, and, and some, what's not changing. There are certain things that should not change really. Uh, something like uh, mission and purpose or values, in theory, those are things that should be so core to your DNA that it would actually be damaging to you to change that. You'd have to have a really good external reason. If, if there was a company that was all about you know, sustainability and then one day they just changed it, um, I wouldn't just be concerned because they don't care about sustainability anymore. I'd be concerned because I'm like, who are you really? Like, how can I trust anything you say? On the other hand, there's aspects of your brand that can and actually should change with the times. You know, you don't want to change your brand every single year unless you're one of those high-end restaurants that kind of like gets a new skin every year, but you do want to, you know, have aspects of your positioning and messaging tied to your target audience. What do they care about? And your audience changes, right? Um, sometimes you're going after different people or the people that you're going after have themselves changed in what they're looking for. Um, so there, it's okay for some parts of it to change and other parts not to, but like figuring those things out early, those are the kinds of questions we talk to clients about. Let's talk about why you're changing. Uh, is there a good business reason for it? Or are you guys just getting bored? Um, or is there some new you know, uh, CEO who kind of want to puts their fingerprint on the organization? And then if you pass the whole, why are you changing thing? We can start to talk about how are we changing? How are we not changing? How much are we changing? You want to make sure that. I will say one thing though about the word rebrand, you do usually need to address it with certain people, especially for example, like regular employees at your company or existing customers. They need to understand that what they like about the place is not going to change. They need to feel like, hey, I shouldn't stop buying from you or I shouldn't stop working here just because we've changed this. So usually getting ahead of, ahead of things on communications um, is really important. That's the time where you really got to throw around that word rebrand. And that's, you know, that's one of the things we do take very seriously whenever we go in. I never like to change things just to change things. I'm not going to change it just because I like it better. If it works, it works. And I, I will totally go with that. Um, we talked about this recently with someone it's really hard to tell someone they have an ugly baby, you know, um, that conversation. And sometimes it's, 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 it's that case. And it's like, you know, it's almost offensive to them to say, you know, but this is my baby. This is my logo and my, you know, my daughter's niece did it three years ago and whatever, um, or back in wh whatever time it was developed. I think that's a really hard conversation. And it, it's one of those that has to be really delicate, you know, and um, how you approach it, how you talk about it, how you consider it. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if sometimes it feels like they're paying us to come and say that their baby is ugly, but um, usually you try to get past that because there are all kinds of emotional reasons that people are attached to something. It's not to say that emotion doesn't play a role in branding, but it's got to have a good reason. Um, I have had times that, for example, we were doing naming for a client and they gave us the prompt, you know, the brief and we worked out strategy. And finally, the day comes when we present, you know, three to five great names with really good rationales of what it means and the extendability. And eventually the the uh, president is just like, you know what, I'm going to go with this name instead because my mom mentioned it to me the other day on a phone call and I just kind of it stuck with me. Sometimes that's how it works. So we're still doing our job by giving our best, most honest assessments um, and then following through on what they decide. We uh, we subscribed not so early into our uh, origin story to the rule of three. We get three chances to bring our expertise to the client. And then at that point, it's theirs to choose. And so we present the information and we tell them all the reasons why and we get excited and maybe they don't see it the same way. Okay, so we get to go back to the drawing board. We get to provide more rationale, more reasoning, more research. Here you go. Ah, they're still not quite feeling it. Okay, we could take it to a focus group. We could take it to their target audience. We could take it to an extended uh, version of the committee and they still don't see it. It's theirs. We have to remember Mm -hmm. that ultimately it's theirs. They've paid for it. We have to let it go. But I want to go back the fourth, fifth and sixth time. (laughs) I want to go back the eighth, ninth and 10th time. I don't want to stop. But that's why we had to create the rule of three, because otherwise you just beat your head against the wall. And do you find because Mike and I talk about this a lot. We sometimes think that you'll take the advice of your doctor. You'll take the advice of your architect. You'll believe what your contractor tells you. But for some reason, you're going to argue with your ad agency. Why is that? There's something about our field that is um, sometimes feels less scientific than some of the others. And granted, it, it maybe is less scientific than something like uh, medicine. But, um, you know, I, I put it in that realm of like psychology, sociology. It's a social science. It is based on research um, in, in good cases. But at some point, it does involve some judgment calls, some leaps of faith. And then later on, while we can track all kinds of things, it's sometimes hard to attribute specific results from specific actions, right? Because there's multiple things that happen. So it creates this sort of sense that like, well, nobody knows exactly what they're doing, which is to say, then, why is their opinion any more valid than my opinion? Um, and it does go back to like, there's this great quote about advertising that's like 100 years old. I forget exactly who said it. It was something like, I know that half of my ad dollars are wasted. I just don't know which half, right? I think we are maybe today a little bit better than half. I don't know that that's even really true. Um, the best we can do is give them, it's like a playing blackjack at a casino. The best thing we can do if we do everything right is just barely still give the house an advantage. Um, but we still want to help our, our clients get the best chance they possibly can. I get this, by the way, also as a teacher, um, you know, in my classes, there's this sense of like, why is, why should I listen to what my teacher is saying? Um, I want to live my life the way or my opinions are just as valid. And I've seen the comparison that a teacher is kind of like, a, you know, a gym trainer, like I, I, a fitness trainer. I, I can give you the best advice, but at the end of the day, it's what you choose to do with it. Um, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. You know, what you what you put into it, what you're going to get out of it. Well, it's very accessible too. Um, you know, nowadays, you know, everybody, everybody's familiar with advertising. Everybody watches Super Bowl commercials and thinks, oh, I, I could do that or I can do that. And yeah, you may be able to have that one off. It's when you do it repetitively and coming back with those ideas, it's hard, but it's, it's very, um, it's very attainable. Like I can't operate on somebody. Jackie thinks she can because she watches a lot of Grey's Anatomy, but um, I know that, you know, that's beyond my skill set. But everybody, I think, can think about advertising and and it's uh, all the tools are so accessible nowadays and it's so right there, you know, 
that um, that everybody can easily put opinions on those things without thinking twice about it. Yeah. And, it, you know, the fact that like sometimes a regular person can just post a video and it can go viral and make a huge impact and a Super Bowl ad that has all these resources and experts can just completely fall flat. So sometimes the results look that way. But again, it's like, yeah, our job is to make sure they can replicate this over and over and over again. And so we don't want to count on those one off miracles. Um, and if something did flop, we want to look really, really closely at why it did. So it never happens again to a person who only plays once. You know, again, it might feel like a card game, like just. I, I don't have any experience with this. Just deal me a hand and you told me I won. This is a stupid game. Well, yeah, if you play one game of poker in your life, you have no way of telling if you're good at it or not. Well, I think it's fun too. I mean, we have a lot of CEOs that we work with and I think they enjoy it. They love the ad meetings. They love, I mean, they really look forward to it. I mean, it's their call of the week. They get excited because it's different and they get to really get their hands in the, in, in, in the wheel and, and be involved in the creative process. And I, th I think it's just a separation from their daily grind, you know, and it's kind of like no pressure for it. So they really yeah. enjoy that. And I enjoy it too. I like having them involved. Um, there's just, you know, some are more involved than others and some push back more than others. So it just depends on that relationship. I agree. I, I think that we get like the more happy meetings with them, you know, some other times they have to meet with their um, lawyer or accountant or landlord. And that conversation might go in different ways. We get the meetings where we get to talk about the possibilities and the future and what could be. Um, and I completely agree that the best projects are the ones where it's uh, really collaborative and we don't have presentations. We have workshops. Um, it's not us telling you the answer, but us giving you some of the raw material and then guiding some conversations. Then when the outcome, you know, when you get the result at the end, it's not like, how do I sell this to them? They've been part of it. You don't have to be sold on it. They were there to make it. Now the next step is how do we sell this through the rest of the organization? And you've got an instant advocate right there with you because they built it with you. Yeah, we we subscribe to the same theory. And I think that collaboration is integral, not just to the success of the new endeavor, but to the long term success of the company. Um, you know, I, I think the agency who creates something in the, the dark and brings it forward is almost never going to be as successful as the one who who works in hand in hand with their client. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, if I knew you better, um, because I am super sarcastic, I would have made a couple of really inappropriately sarcastic jokes about you having so many multiple jobs and wearing so many hats and maybe, you know, being able to keep a job, whatever. Uh, but I'm actually fascinated by the way you get to balance the teaching of the university with the hands-on uh, work at the agency. I feel like in a lot of ways, that's got to give you a very unique perspective to following the book, literally, and yet getting out into the world and being able to improvise. And so it, it's like your jazz and classical music all at the same time. Is that super hard or does it just make it that much better? I love it. I feel like I've spent my whole career calibrating to get to this point. I love when there's like, because the thing is like teaching and, and consulting, I love them both. And the better I am at one, it actually helps me on the other side as well. Um, there was a stretch in my career where those worlds needed to stay more separate. You know, when I was younger and not teaching yet, um, I was a full-time professional. I often had freelance work on the side as creatives often do um, later on as a strategist as well. And there was a sense of like, you know, Agency owners know that a lot of their employees do freelance. You just understand there's a separation of church and state. You keep your work off to the side. Don't use our equipment or time. Don't let it impact your work. But whatever, if you want to make some money on the side, 
and there's no conflict, go for it. So when I came down to teach, I thought it was going to have to be similar to that, but I wanted to be transparent about everything. I wanted all my clients to know that teaching is my priority during some times of the year. Um, and I wanted the university, of course, to know um, because it was also a legal issue. Every year I have to fill out disclaimer forms explaining there's not a conflict of interest and things like that. And so actually as part of uh, uh, working out working here, I talked to my uh, department head in advertising and said, hey, is it okay if I continue to, to do consulting on the side? And they actually said, yes, in fact, that's one of the reasons we hired you is because of your industry experience. And we we like the idea of you continuing because that keeps you fresh. It keeps you relevant. It means that you're not going to just be teaching, hey, way back when, you know, at your job, but just today what's happening. And that absolutely proved true. And so what I get to do, again, it helps that teaching is uh, somewhat seasonal. But um, what's great now is that uh, for example, articles and thought leadership that I've created with my agency, Blue Green, with the intention of sharing it with clients to help them understand branding better, um, are now actually like readings for my classes. And, you know, instead of making the students buy my $70 textbook, which I don't have, I send them some links to my website saying, hey, check these out. They were specifically written to talk about, you know, brand architecture or naming or values or whatever it happens to be. Um, but those two worlds keep feeding each other. Basically, it's a matter of I even now, like when I share stories with my students or case studies, they are things that I've done with Blue Green just in the past couple of years. Um, and in my uh, industry work, we make sure that Blue Green is very educational in what we do. We make a point of as we work with our clients, teaching them and giving them the tools they need in case later on they want to do it themselves. Yeah, I think it's so important, too. I mean, um, I was an adjunct professor for many years at our university here. Um, and I found that when you're able to talk about your craft and what you do, and you're able to teach it, all of a sudden you start to realize at some point, I actually know what I'm talking about. Like um, it, it becomes more real. It like you are actually becoming better at what you do by talking about it to others. And um, and Jackie's a big educational component here as well. She started a um a um an online university basically for people that maybe couldn't hire agencies that didn't have the money for it, uh, local operators and marketing directors um, called Brand State U. And it's uh, very affordable and everything's online. You can go educate yourself on the branding basics, you know, and kind of get yourself, you know, familiar with everything. And it's always kind of been a part of our agency as well. That's fantastic. Yeah, I think that that's great. And I basically feel like I remember when we started out, there was this question of, you know, people would ask, why are you doing that? Aren't you giving away your secrets and making it so people don't hire you? And our attitude was like, if somebody downloading a PDF and reading an article is enough, then that's fine. They shouldn't hire us. That doesn't that doesn't make sense. Um, earlier in our careers, when we wanted to like, we didn't want to say no to any client, we never would have done that. But both my partner and I are advanced stages of our careers where we're like, no, we only want to work with people who actually need us um, and need the expertise that we bring. And if they can do it without more power to them. Yeah, we I, I was I was I was the one that was against all that early on. And, exactly. Um, and I was waiting to see if you were going to out yourself. Before. <laughs> Yo, Absolutely. Absolutely. I was like, well, God, are you sharing? Stop sharing so much. And um, and uh, two years ago, we wrote a book together called uh, He Said, She Said Branding. And basically, we the whole book is about our branding process. I mean, it is literally a Bible. If you want to find out how we do what we do, it goes step by step and tells you everything. I mean, you still need to execute it. And that's the deliverable, right? Um, and having the talent behind it. But it gives you an idea of how the process works and really an understanding of what branding is based on what our belief system is. Um, so yeah, we've kind of grown full circle in that to where, you know, I was again, that now we're we're sharing way too much information got it so jackie were you the proponent of that you were pushing the let's give away more yes always because exactly that it's the best magnet it weeds out the people who don't really need us because they feel like a google search answers all their questions and it leaves 
our expertise out there for the people who do actually need us so that they will find us. And it's a win-win to me. I agree. And then that means that when they do come to you, they've already been primed to uh, understand your processes or maybe did some of their background homework because they took that first step. Correct. And, you know, as we've grown as an agency, I mean, we're in our 23rd year. So we're not as cheap as we were in 2001, much to the chagrin of some local businesses. Uh, And so I didn't like the feeling of listening to somebody totally seeing how to solve the problem, realizing the level of expertise that they needed wasn't really it's not as complicated. I mean, it, it was a pretty simple fix. They just had to rewire some thinking in their minds. And so instead of telling them no or working for much less than our time can now bring us, this was a way to say yes and. Yes, here is a solution to your problem. Go watch these videos. Do these workbooks. The, everything you need to know is right there. And I don't have to clog up the agency's resources doing this thing. It's a win-win. Sure, that's great. I'm sure your employees appreciated it too. Everybody appreciates it except Michael. <laughs> it sounds like he does now. It just took a little while, right? I, I do now. I do now. I've, I've, I've grown. I've listened. But, <laughs> but yeah, there's, you know, it goes both ways. I mean, like I said, we, we're definitely two sides of the coin. And um, we, we look at it as a restaurant. If you've ever been in the restaurant business, we compare it to the front of the house, back of the house. Jackie and her team are kind of front of the house. They're touching tables. They're the host. They're the they're 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 reading tables. They're feeling you know what what do we what do they want and and then they bring it to the back of the house and we're kind of not seen as much. But every once in a while, I will put my chef hat on and apron and I walk out and meet people. But it's rare. I, I try to keep in the back as much as I can. This is a me being on this podcast is kind of a um a, a jump into the um front front hall that I'm not comfortable with all the time. Got it. No, I- he- Sorry, I'm going to interrupt real quick because I just want you to know he uses that analogy just so he can work his way all the way down to having everybody in this building say, yes, chef, when he tells us to do anything. I was just about to say that. Too much bear. And that's the whole point of that analogy is so that we address him in his words appropriately. All right. I'm so glad. I was just about to mention the bear, which I just binged a few weeks ago and loved it. Um, I haven't (sighs) used the restaurant analogy, but I can totally see how that plays. And here's a fun story. In one of my agency jobs in Chicago, the restaurant that the bear was based on, Mr. Beef, was right around the corner. And I was there every single week. I was, when everyone else is like, let's go get salads. I was like, not me. I'm going to get my dipped Italian beef and not the healthiest choice. But now years later, I get to say, hey, I was at that place. Of course, it didn't look like that, but um, it was great. No, cleaner or less clean in reality, because I'm worried about the answer. Well, no, I mean, I only saw the front of house. So um, and this was the before. Right. They don't they didn't have a transformation like they do uh, in the bear. Sorry, spoilers. But um, the uh, you know, it's fun because like even like the neighborhood. Right. I don't remember being that rough, but maybe it was some years earlier uh, by the time I got there. It was already all right. But I remember my parking spot was like right by where there was like some sort of a gang fight going on outside in the show. I'm like, hey, that's my spot. My wife's like, you probably shouldn't brag about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we love that show. And uh, I've never wanted uh, Chicago beef sandwich more than after watching that show. And I don't know if it, if it would let me down or not, but uh, we have a lot of good food down in Louisiana. But for some reason, that thing looks so good the way he prepared it's it and all that. Yeah. Yeah, it would not disappoint. Good. So, Shahar, when you think about um, the future, you know, we, we have had the opportunity in the past few episodes uh, to talk about chat GPT because it's there and you're dealing with it from both sides as a professor who maybe is or is not encouraging your students to learn it or avoid it. And then uh, as a professional, where do you see our industry heading with AI? 
Yeah, it's funny because it's like that's the topic everyone's talking about in every yeah. industry. Um, and you're right. I look at it from multiple perspectives. So first of all, as a as a creative, as a copywriter, I this is my start in my career. And also I teach the copywriting class uh, here at U of I. So I'm rebooting it right now because of AI. Um, I feel like I've been a carpenter my whole life and someone just invented power tools. It is fantastic in the right hands. It's also terribly dangerous slash worthless at best and dangerous at worst in the wrong hands. If people don't know what they're doing, um, you still have to use your human process of like thinking the messaging strategy, et cetera. I can talk all about that later, but you can't just like, you know, throw stuff in and expect good stuff to come out of it. However, in the right hands, it is amazing. Uh, my first job as a copywriter, my boss used to tell me, give me, give me 50 headlines by lunch. And that was considered like a heavy lift. Now you could do that in, in 10 minutes. It's not about how many. It's about did you give it a good prompt and looking at the results, do you know where to take it from here? It's a good, it's a great first draft for all that content in life that we need to draft that is not groundbreaking work, but rather like I got this routine thing I've got to do. Um, and uh, so again, as a senior copywriter slash creative strategist slash brand messaging person, I think it's awesome. I worry about my students who are graduating into a world um, that this exists uh, because I'm afraid that it's like in the ladder of their career, somebody just knocked out the bottom rung. And I've heard this from friends of mine that work in um, you know web development saying the same thing and friends of mine that are lawyers saying like, oh, we don't really need so many paralegals anymore. So there's lots of industries where entry level positions are the ones that are the most threatened by this. And so what I tell my students is, look, if you're going to use chat to help do your assignment, that's fine, but don't just make it like your final draft. It's got to be like a draft that then you look at because there could be things wrong with it. There could be things where it's just really generic or nonsense. Um, and beyond just like whatever grade you get, just think about this. If chat could do your homework assignment, that means chat could do your job. And what else, what are you graduating into at this point? So really think about what you bring to the table um, beyond that. Um, in terms of like our consulting, it can work great in certain ways, but because we specialize so much in tech and financial companies, we're being very careful about it because a lot of clients don't want their content run through a chat and then it becomes, you know, part of a public domain on a new level. Um, they could lose control of the message. So we would never do that without client's permission. Um, but there's lots of ways you can still use it. I've had a client that actually said, hey, those brand messaging guidelines that you gave us that were really detailed, we use that to create some of our content now. Um, because you've clearly organized messaging pillars and hierarchy and given us some sample language with tone of voice. Now we can actually have it produce certain content. Um, and then like some senior person can just kind of tweak it and be done. So strategist Shahar is thrilled by that. Messaging guidelines now have so much more power than they used to. Copywriter Shahar is horrified that I just invented nuclear weapons and I'm destroying, you know, my own future self kind of a thing. So there's all kinds of ways that I look at it. I think it's exciting. Um, I think it is a force that we all have to accept. Um, and just like everybody else, I am a rank amateur. I'm not going to pretend otherwise, but I'm trying to learn so that I can then teach the right way too. Yeah, it's 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 a brave new world. I mean, um, Jackie thinks I'm um, going to climb into my hole and never come out because I'm afraid of uh, the, the the robot taking over. But and, and there is some some fear of that. But on a professional level, my fears are the same. I think that. Um, you know, we talked about my, you know, college professor and, and the grind that we went through. The grind was important for me. Like, um, like it, it shaped my entire career. The fact that the first day of class, it was like, okay, I need 300 logos by tomorrow. I need whatever I need. You know, he would, 
there were times where he would, um, you know, if you were late for class, he would shut the door on you and say, you're not coming in. You missed the plane. You know, the, the, the campaign failed because you, you know, you missed your deadline, whatever. It was, it was very rigorous and very hard. And um, while it was painful at the time, I had no friends, I had no life for two years, but I, it, it taught me how to, how to work in agency life, how to really grind out work. And we kind of have a philosophy, like through quantity comes quality. You know, you have to get through the grind of it, you know? And if we're skipping that step, where are we? We end up in a world of mediocrity, you know, where the first draft is the right draft and we're just done. You know, it's quick and easy, right? Because everybody wants things faster now. And faster now isn't always right. You know, we want to be timely, we want to have a good process, but man, what are we losing in that? So that's my fear going down the path, you know? I agree. I um, The grind is absolutely true. And it's not like we're hazing the next generation. It's that the grind is one of the ways that you learn. Um, you learn quality through doing some quantity and variety and getting that feedback. Um, and yeah, I, I absolutely agree that if they don't do that, if people don't do that and hop right to using this, then the quantity of work is going to just explode without the quality going up at all. Um, in fact, the quality then would go much down and then even good stuff out there is just now going to have to compete with so much more noise. So, um, I think that you're right. I think that the, the grind is still very necessary in order to understand how to use this power tool. Yeah, we had, a, I was on a call the other day, um, a Zoom call with a client and um, he was CEO of the company and we're talking about something and um, he got real quiet for a second and he popped back on and he sent us a draft that he just put into chat GPT for a press release or something. And um, I was like, God damn it. You know, like, like, I don't want that. Like I, that was, that was, and, and it was, and it wasn't bad and it wasn't, you know, whatever. It was the fact that this tool is like, you know, people are going to start thinking my, my fear, it hasn't happened yet, but again, I can do this or I can, I can, I can. And, and yes, it is going to open the door for that. But at the same time, like kind of like what you said in, in, in the wrong hands, the right hands, you know, how are you processing that information? Is it on voice? Is it, is it going to, what are you seeing the long-term ramifications of the things that you put in there and it comes back, you know? Absolutely. Shahar, I want to circle back because I agree with everything we just said about chat GPT. So I don't think y'all need my voice on that, but I want to circle back to what we were talking about earlier with people um, maybe a little bit buying into the recommendations of uh, doctors, accountants, lawyers, architects, and questioning us. And so I pose this question kind of semi-regularly to our guests. Uh, so you're next on the hot seat. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. But do you think, and especially where you sit with education, do you think having a licensing um, process for agencies would diminish that issue if we treated ourselves like CPAs and architects and lawyers and doctors, where we had to get some um, specific educational path, specific licensing, um, specific continuing education. And the AMA has tried and the 4As have tried. I'm not discounting the efforts they've put forth. But if you have a phone, you can call yourself an agency. Yeah. So we've diminished our own career path in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I remember this going back to when I was in school. And by the way, like my world, uh, it sounds like I'm very motivated to say yes, and it should be a master's degree from the University of Illinois strategic. You know, I'm not going to say that, though, because it's I don't I don't think that a license is, uh, first of all, who issues the license? Uh, it would always be a question. Um, I don't think of us in the advert. I don't think of myself as being in the advertising world or even like the brand communications world. I'm in the business of persuasion. That's basically what my training is in and what I help clients do. And that begins by persuading them, people, that you are the right person for the job or the right agency to hire or what have you. Um, hopefully by honest means, you're persuading people. Um, 
licenses are a way that other industries can persuade people that I am qualified for this job. We don't quite have that. We have case studies and testimonials and whatever it is. But it's just like the ticket to entry, you know, to show that you belong in the, the business of persuasion, persuade people like that. It's about that easy. You know, it's um, I like to say this like strategist in particular, it's this booming area where like nobody can quite define exactly what strategy is and how does one get an entry level position in strategy? Um, here's the restaurant analogy that I kind of use. I'm like, it's kind of like a career in strategy is like going to that really cool club that doesn't even have a sign out the door. You've got to kind of know it's there. You got to know that you go around the side door and knock three times and say the password and then they let you in. Um, how do you know when and how to do that? Well, you have to be curious and ask lots of questions because that is the ticket to entry for a world of strategy and that the answers are there, but it's not going to be an obvious path. And that's by design. It's like we've they've made the pass the path tricky because they only want people that can navigate tricky paths to go it. So I feel that way about our field in general. Now, I the, the reality though is that people are often persuaded by um, certain qualifications that maybe they should or shouldn't be. And I've seen many people you know, work their way up the ladder or always get good jobs because they had just the right agency name um, or the right university name on their resume. And that opened a lot of doors. So that is the downside of it is that, you know, I, I grew up in a uh, career that was very scrappy, working at smaller places, not saying that that's a better way to do it. But I know if somebody gets a Leo Burnett job right out of college, that now opens up a lot of doors to where they go next, because what that text tells the next employer is, well, if they were good enough for them, they're good enough for me. So I don't think there's a single document or license because I don't think our industry is a single thing. I do like the idea, though, of certain qualifications being made a little more tangible. When you see online certifications for things like, you know, I can now do Google Analytics, whatever. Okay, what's the equivalent of that for more substantial type things? I don't know. But I do like the idea of people trying to better themselves and then communicate what they can do. I love the way you put that, though. It's a great way to kind of summarize it and put it in there. Um, I, I look at it like the personal accountability that people have in the industry. And we see it, you probably see it all the time when you come across a client and they've just been jaded, they're jaded completely because they had a bad experience, right? And this guy didn't do what he said he was gonna do. And maybe their expectations were too high. There's a lot of reasons for all that to happen. But um, the personal responsibility that that we do as professionals to take on, to say that, you know what? The money that somebody's using for advertising, that could be money that's paying the bills next month, you know? And they really need it to work. There's no guarantees in advertising, obviously, but, you got to take it seriously. I mean, you can't just do it because I think things have changed in the past many years. Everybody's not just about, you know, getting the awards on the shelves and all that. It's really about the work. It's the work doing what it's supposed to do. You know, are you getting the phone to ring? Are you getting people in the door? Are you building awareness? All the things that are tangible to somebody being successful next month and paying their bills. Yeah, absolutely. Jackie, you were just about to say something in response to that too. I was just going to jump in and, and agree with you. Um, the only thing that I think could really come out of um, some sort of an organizational structure is we would start to label ourselves specifically and individually. Uh, this, you know, 64,000 agencies across the country, and there's not a lot of clarity on which ones do which things because we use so many words interchangeably. I think we've done ourselves and our industry a disservice by not clearly communicating that this person is an ENT and this person is an ophthalmologist and this person is a cardiologist. It, it, it could be clear, but we don't use the words that way. And so I, I think that kind of shoots ourselves in the feet sometimes. Yeah, I think it's because we want to have our cake and eat it too. It's like we have grown into what kinds of things we do. 
Um, again, it's like, it's long since I haven't spent most of my career on advertising. I spent it on brand, brand communications, which is sometimes marketing and sometimes packaging and sometimes digital experiences and sometimes events, whatever. Um, and enjoyed the fact that the universe of what kinds of things I cover get bigger and bigger. As a result, it's harder to navigate. It's harder to kind of even like tell people this is the zone that we're in and this is the kind of thing uh, that you're looking for. So yeah, you're right. I don't know that our industry will ever um, land on like set language because also many of us are motivated to have that next new thing um, and to to throw that phrase out there that others aren't using. Um, I hate when that happens, but I'm sure I've been guilty of that too. We all have. Yeah. We all have. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about how what's your process for research what are the the tips and tricks you use to dig into the target audience to really understand the buyer's journey what are your and this is michael's favorite word when i say it what are your hacks um for getting that done uh you think in the most efficient and effective way possible yeah you know it depends on how many people you want to talk to i love one-on-one interviews um just a conversation you know and I'm not as much of a quant guy. I'm glad to see you cheer a little bit there, Jackie, because I, you know, I completely value data. Of course, I just personally get a little bored if my job is to run a poll and crunch the numbers. I like when someone else does that part and I can start to analyze. Um, but interviews, I love when you can ask a prompt and then just like you guys do on this podcast, see where the conversation takes you. And, you know, some one-off comment they made in the 37th minute of the interview later becomes your tagline because it's just so good. You don't even need to do anything else. Your job is to pluck out the wisdom and run with it from there. Um, so I absolutely love those types of things. Uh, here's a hack that I heard recently that I really loved going back to AI. Um, I have a friend who runs a digital agency and he says he creates, and there's a great video on this. He creates a persona through AI. He says like, all right, chat, um, you are a 27 year old uh, dentist assistant who lives in um, Ohio and blah, blah, blah. How do you feel about this? What are the things that keep you up at night? And basically creating a persona and then interviewing the persona in a certain way. Is that the same thing as interviewing a human being? No, it's not, but it does work well to complement it. Or as a second stage, like I've gotten raw information from these people and now let me maybe stress test it a bit. It's so interesting to see the different ways that people can bring that out. But talking directly to the people involved and then talking to a variety of people, Almost always, if we're helping a, brand, a company with some sort of a holistic rebrand, for example, um, or messaging strategy, we want to talk to their customers, their current customers, their former customers, the one that got away, their employees, that partner that refers them sometimes, the person who's been at their company for their entire lives, the intern who just started there a week ago. You know, you talk to people from different perspectives. Usually what happens is they all tell you something really different, but then you start to see where are those different comments aligned. You know, there's some sort of a red thread that brings us all together. I mean, yes, nailed it. Exactly. Agree 100%. Mic drop. Interview over. <laughs> right on. And then someone else can crunch the data because that's not my uh, my area of interest. But you just don't learn as much from the data. It's the way that they answer the question. It's their facial expressions. It's their tone of voice. There's so much between the lines. The words are, what, what do they say, 6 7% of the communication are the actual words. So I need the other 90 plus percent to really know the story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Agree 100%. Um, I don't know how it's possible that we've done this for an hour, uh, but Shahar, you have been a delightful guest. Uh, tell the people where they can find you so that they'll know how to follow along to get your great insights in the future. Yeah, for sure. So um, 
Again, I'm a partner and creative strategist at Blue Green Branding, and um, our website is bluegreenbranding.com. So we specialize in tech and financial B2B companies. We have all kinds of uh, articles, resources, insights, so what have you, um, like we talked about earlier. Um, so check out that site because it's got freebies for you. It's the same things I share with my students at the university. Um, and then, yeah, we'd be happy to follow you on LinkedIn. I'm sure you can check out the spelling of my name uh, over on your podcast there, but we'd be happy to connect with you, talk shop. Um, and uh, yeah, have conversations just like this one. It's been a lot of fun. Shahar, you were delightful. Thank you so much for your time and for everybody listening. We appreciate you. Um, stick around for the next episode of He Said, She Said, Razor Branding Podcast. Thank you both. Thank you. <laughs>